There's an island off the north coast of Germany called Heligoland. In 1994, off the northwestern coast of that island, a body was discovered with injuries that suggested foul play. Wearing smart clothes and expensive shoes, he was given the name The Gentleman. But nearly 30 years later, he's still unidentified and his killers have got away with murder. Welcome to the mysterious case of the Gentleman of Heligoland, one of Europe's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 1 Gentlemen Tell No Secrets My name is Ken Davis. You may know me from another podcast, The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head, in which we take a very deep dive into a very cold case. And we're not just there reporting what happened, we're trying to solve it by uncovering new facts, new witnesses, and just maybe the truth. Well, with this podcast, I want to introduce you to a new case with its own idiosyncrasies, different clues, different twists and turns, and different discoveries to make. And just like with Fred, we're gonna be operating in real time. We don't know the outcome yet. There may not even be an outcome, but there just might, and you're gonna be on that journey with us. This will be a diary of our investigation as we go. And I'll try to keep you as up to date as we are. But I'm not working alone on this one. I'm gonna be joined by an old friend of mine, a man called Ian Mackay. I met Ian on my first day at Manchester University in the 1980s. I was studying chemistry, he was studying law and we've been lifelong friends ever since. He runs an art gallery now, so he's trying to fit this in around his day job, just like I do. And I was particularly looking forward to having someone on the journey with me. Well, Ian, welcome, and it's great to have you on board. Um, great to be here, Ken. So, I mean, what are your feelings going into this? I mean, I've been doing Fred for three years. I know what you're about to undertake. Excited and, uh, and delighted, of course, that you've asked me to to join in. I'm a massive fan of Fred the Head and the podcast. Bit nervous. How could little old me do anything that the police have got stuck on for twenty odd years? But but really keen to get my teeth into it and see if we can't look at it in a different way and and and, and make some progress. Well, that's the attitude I've always had to Fred, really, in terms of picking up the stones, seeing what's underneath them. Hey, sure as eggs are eggs, we'll find something that'll take us to the next step. Always have done, and I don't think this will be any different. And I know you've been looking at the facts, if you like, that are in the public domain in terms of how this body was found and all the circumstances 
around that. So that might be a good place to start. If you can just give us a description of exactly what the police found back in 1994. I will. It's a very good place to start. Uh, interesting that you say to give you the facts, of course, because there are one or two areas which are reported slightly differently in different press releases. But I'm going to work on Locate International. They have been partnering up with the German police recently to relaunch an appeal for information to try and move forward on this mystery. And as per their website, they report that on July the 11th, 1994, the body of a man was found by a police boat in the North Sea, just west of the island of Heligoland, which is uh, northern Germany. They took it to the city of Wilhelmshaven, and it's the Wilhelmshaven police that have been investigating for the last 21 and a half years. They have no idea who this person is, anything like that. Well, there's some, there's some fairly uh, significant facts, I think, about this, uh, this case, which gives me hope that we should be able to narrow the field a little bit. But of course, they've tried for 28 years without success so hopefully uh, ignorance is bliss on our part and we'll just <laughs> press on and do something they said that when the body was fished out of the water the body had shown injuries head injuries and injuries to the upper body plus evidence that it had been weighed down so on the website they say there's a suggestion that there's a possibility of intentional harm they're not sure but I think we can proceed on the assumption that, that there is, there has been third party involved here. Uh, it's not definitive that it's a homicide, but the indicators are there that it probably was. Correct. Okay. What kind of condition was this guy in then when, when they found him? They're able to say that he's aged at the time of his death. He was aged between 45 and 50 years old. Interestingly, and, and these are the features, I think, which, which make this not quite unique, but very, very rare. The guy was six foot five inches tall, but very, very slim, only 70 to 75 kilos or 12, 11 to 12 stone in old money. They've done a facial re reconstruction. However, they can't say how long his hair was, what color it was, what color his eyes were. So I'm not sure that would be completely helpful to look at the facial reconstruction. It sounds like he's lost his hair. Sounds like he's lost his eyes. So it sounds like there's been considerable decomposition. Does that say anything about how long they think that body had been in the water for? Well, they are saying that they're expected, expecting that he'd been in the water from the end of 93 through 94, up to a month, a month before they found him. Okay. According to the German police, any time between the latter quarter of 93 yeah. and, and all of 94, so all, all of the first half of 94, so Correct. maybe nine months is up to nine months is a kind of a reasonable estimate, would you say? I think so. Great. So he's been unnamed and unclaimed ever since he was found. But from what I've read, they've they kind of got some indicators that they think he might be from the UK. So can you just talk us through why they think that? 
Well, I think the uh, main reason why they think he's from the UK is that when he was found, he was wearing a, a pair of black or navy blue loafers made by Church & Co. in Northampton. So very expensive, uh, handmade British shoes. That, plus the fact that he was still wearing his tie, <laughs> is why they've called him the gentleman. Okay. Um, the tie is also interesting, and I think clues in that. It's a it's a basic color of dark blue, with different colored diagonal stripes on it: silver, grey, brown, orange, green, and it's a hundred percent wool, so an expensive tie as well. Mm -hmm. uh, also on the tie, a couple of labels. Uh, the, okay. The, lab the label I can actually read on the label. It says it's navy. But then there's a lot of uh, a lot of detail on there. Numbers. It's made of 100% wool. Uh, it says to dry clean in English and in French. Okay. So, so just to recap, he's found in in July 1994 by this island called Heligoland by the German police. They fish him out of the water. The body's badly decomposed. So they don't know the colour of his eyes. They don't even know the colour of his hair. But what they do know, he's this extremely tall man and a relatively thin man for, for, that, Correct. for that kind of height. They yeah. think it's a suspicious death because of the injuries to the head and the upper torso, but also the fact there seems to be some evidence that he may have been weighted down. That seems to, is it, have I kind of in, encapsulated that in the right kind of way? You have to, and, and that, of course, asks more questions than it answers, doesn't it? Well, it does. I think there's, some, there's a number of interesting things that come from that. In, in the sense of Heligoland is an island off the north of Germany. It's, it's kind of at a point where there's a lot of shipping traffic around there. You've got the North Sea. You've got the English Channel. You've got a lot of trade going around that part of, uh, of, of the UK and Northern Europe. I suppose it's difficult to say, therefore, where this person may have entered the water. He could have drifted along from somewhere. He could have been thrown in there or anywhere else around that kind of neck of the woods. I mean, would you agree with that? I definitely agree with that. He could have come off a boat. He could have been taken out by boat from Germany and put overboard there. Uh, and he could have drifted from anywhere, couldn't he, really? Yeah, but I think it's probably wise for us to keep our search area fairly wide at this point given that, that he could have ended up being there if he'd been in the sea for nine months he could have drifted a fair distance in that time I okay that's so. interesting just want to come back to a couple of things the height thing that seems to me like a massive clue in the sense of i looked at a website called tall life one of the useful things on that website is that they've got a distribution of heights shown there. Right. So what proportion of the population are generally different heights? And six foot five today, if someone was six foot five today, they would be only one of three people in a thousand of males. We're talking males only here. Now, if this guy was 45 to 50, in 1994 so let's say he was born in the 40s that's extraordinarily tall for someone born then because we've all grown so much in the last 50 years really 
I think that's a massive opportunity, uh, a big clue. It's probably the best thing we've got. The other thing, of course, is these labels. Now, I think what we probably should do, therefore, is use that outlier of height and try and find anyone who's kind of gone missing from, well, anywhere around that neck of the woods who's that tall. And I might get some work done on the labels. Years ago, I used to work in the clothing industry. I might be able to find out a little bit more about those labels, see what those labels tell us. So that sounds like a plan. So why don't I do the labels thing? Why don't you go and have a look around the world? This is a tough job, by the way. Are you paying travel expenses, Ken? <laughs> I'm talking virtually, Ian, really. Oh, okay, okay. But yeah, see who you can find. You might be that tall, but that'll be a needle in the haystack, that one, mate. But best of luck. Thank you very much. I think I might need it. So whilst Ian set to work on the unenviable task of looking through endless thousands of missing people, and let me tell you, that's not a pleasant task because you know most of those people met untimely ends. My job was nicer. I was going to have a look at those labels on the tie, see if they could tell us anything. And there were two labels. One was white with a yellow rectangle with black numbers. And there was also a small black and white label. And these are shown on the Locate International website if you want to take a look. Firstly, this white and yellow label it had these seven numbers in black, probably an indicator of that particular item's stock code. And secondly, the black and white label. That showed the color, navy, said professional dry clean only, and the same in French. It had the code H2674 and CA01295, and said 100% wool, and the same in French. Now, that white and yellow label immediately caught my eye. I'd worked in the clothing industry in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. That happened to be my era in the clothing industry. And I recognised that label. It's a Marks and Spencers label. Now for international listeners, Marks and Spencers, M&S, is a major retailer in the UK. And at that time, they were the kings of the high street. And the business I worked for supplied Marks and Spencers and I spent a lot of time at their head office in Baker Street in London. And that was an old M&S label. I'd stake my life on it. But M&S had supplied a lot of clothing to a lot of people in the 1990s. That wasn't much of a breakthrough. But what came next was. Joe Willis, who's been amazing in her work on Fred the Head has kindly thrown herself into this new project on the research side and she came up trumps as she so often does. That code on the smaller label CA01295 she checked online to see if there was any reference at all to it and there was. It was a Marks and Spencer's code but not from the UK from Canada. And did that now make sense of the English and French translations? In Canada, you have to have English, you have to have French on any label. So, was our victim, although found on the other side of the world, wearing 
a Canadian tie. Now, I did work in the industry at that time and we had found that code online confirming it was Marks and Spencers in Canada, but was that enough to prove that the tie was Canadian? We're not experts. So I needed to find an expert and I found one, a man called Jonathan Walford. Jonathan Walford is the curatorial director of the Fashion History Museum. He also happens to be based in Canada, in Ontario. So I contacted Jonathan and I sent him the pictures of the labels. And the next day we had a conversation about what he could deduce from those labels. And it was very interesting. I'm joined by uh, Jonathan Walford, who is the curatorial director of the Fashion History Museum in Cambridge, Ontario in Canada. And I'm very grateful indeed to have the chance to speak to you about these labels, Jonathan. I'm, I'm happy to talk to you. Great. So, so we had a theory, but it was a theory, an amateur theory, that what we were looking at in terms of those numbers may, may be related to Canada. So I found you on the web and sent you over that information that we were looking at. And I'm really interested in what your thoughts are in terms of whether our our initial thoughts are well grounded. <laughs> I think your initial thoughts are, are, are very well grounded. Um, the label has a series of numbers on it, and the number that caught my eye was CA01295. And that uh, five number, two letter uh, number is typical of a Canadian registration number, which you see um, the something that started in about 1970, I think it was, that Canada. Uh, use these registration numbers for manufacturers to register their products and, and register their company. So um, everyone who, who manufactured anything in Canada got a number. And that particular number, you look it up, um, was given to Marks and Spencer Canada. And Marks and Spencer came to Canada in 1973. They were here until 1999 uh, when they closed out and went back to, to England. But the time that they were here, they also manufactured in Canada for the Canadian stores. So um, that plus also the fact that the label is in French and English, which I don't think you, you see in, in Marks and Spencer labels in the UK. So that suggests to me that it was definitely Canadian made. Also, if it was actually something that was made for export, um, then I think it's required by Canadian law and probably British law as well to actually be marked made in Canada, which this label does not have. It's just a, a bilingual uh, label that says professionally dry clean and then with a bunch of, of uh, Right. Well, that's really, really quite important. So from what I'm just deducing from what you said, there are potentially three reasons to be pretty sure this tie was made and sold in Canada. And those three reasons are the, the number is an Marks and Spencer's Canadian registration number. It's it's got dual uh, language, English and French, which I guess would be uh, required in Canada and thirdly and still is of course yeah and thirdly because there's no made in Canada uh, mention of made in Canada on the label that suggests it was made for the domestic market rather than to be exported correct yeah okay 
Okay, so just remind me again, if you don't mind, about the dates that Marks and Spencer were operational in Canada, because clearly they would need to have been within the dates that are similar to the date when this person was found. Sure. Yeah, Marks and Spencer's, uh, they opened their first store in Toronto in 1973, and I, they grew to about the size of, I think, it was about 45 stores across Canada. They overextended themselves a little bit and uh, had a bit of a problem in the early 90s with, with the uh, economy uh, kind of going sour. And then free trade kind of killed them off. So in 1999, I think, was the last store that closed uh, in Canada. And that also was in Toronto. But in the meantime, they had actually opened up about 40, 45 stores across Canada. And those stores were across all states of Canada? Or did they particularly centre in certain parts of Canada, do you know? Well, they tended to go where a lot of the English expats were, so <laughs> it, it sparked or it uh, tends to get a lot of attention from, from the English expats. So there was a lot in Toronto, uh, there was a lot out, uh, um, I think they went as far as certainly in British Columbia. Um, they were not popular in Quebec as well, but the majority of them were in Ontario. Super. Well, if there's any more clothing that turns up for a little label, let me know. There are shoes. There are shoes. Well, there are shoes. For no other reason, uh, if the, the sizing on them would be able to help, because uh, British sizing is different from... American and Canadian sizing. So. That's a really good point. That's a really yeah. good point. Now we know the make of the shoes. They were made. They were made by a company called Churches Church Shoes, who are in Northampton. They are. They're a very, very well-known brand, but expensive. They were also exported to Canada. Were they? They were sold through um, Dax. Had them in Toronto. Yeah. So, yeah so they were. They were available here. But but you you're you're definitely sure they they definitely would have been sold in Canada. You would remember them. I know they were. Yeah, I mean I I, I used to be the the curator of the Bath Museum in Toronto, so I know my shoes. Thanks, Jonathan. You have a fantastic rest of your Wednesday. Thank you. you we'll, too. we'll catch up again soon. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Thanks, Jonathan. Bye bye. Now, I know that wasn't a great line from Canada, but hopefully you caught the gist of that conversation. Jonathan was very clear. That tie was definitely manufactured and sold to someone in Canada by Marks and Spencers. It was definitely bought in Canada because there's no made in Canada wording on the label. M&S were operational at the time we're interested in, particularly in the English regions of Canada. Toronto, the major cities. Churchy shoes were also sold in Canada, but at the more exclusive end of the retail chains, like Dax, but certainly available in the major cities. So, the two pieces of clothing that were on the body that was fished out of the sea, one of those items was definitely bought in Canada, the tie, the other one was also available to be bought in Canada, the shoes. So, if German police are looking at these items and associating them with the UK, they could be making a big mistake. Because in my view, Canada is the first place to look. So those labels ended up telling us a great deal. So now, I need to speak with Ian again to see where he's got to with his missing persons search.
So, Ian, I know you've pulled an all-nighter in, combing your way through all these missing people on the internet, and I know that's a horrible job because you're looking at faces of people who are probably deceased, and there are tens of thousands of them. So I don't envy you that job. Did you have any joy? Well, you're right. There are. There are tens of thousands of missing people around the world, and I focused in uh, on the guys missing in the UK first, uh, given the uh, suggestion from the German police, I looked at all the missing people that would have been the right age, that went missing at the right time, and unfortunately couldn't find anybody anywhere near the height of six foot five. I thought, okay, he's found off the coast of Europe. I went and had a look through the yellow list that Interpol produced. That's a, a global thing. Um, more than seven and a half thousand names on there. And again, I looked for people who would be between the age of 80 and 85 now. Nobody anywhere near that height. I was despairing and I was bloody tired as well, Ken, I'll tell you that. But I was re-energized when you gave me some very, very important information. Of course, and that, and that was this thing about the Canadian labels, the fact that we suspected they were from Canada and we got that confirmed by, well, I suppose one of the world's leading label experts who happens to be in Canada himself. And what he said was, yes, those labels are definitely Canadian. That tie was not only manufactured in Canada, it was sold in Canada. He also said those church loafers were also for sale in Canada. Now, they're not cheap, so they weren't for sale everywhere, but you could definitely get them in the main conurbations. So I guess that helped you focus down on Canada as a particular location. And focusing on Canada, there's a huge site called Canada's Missing, which has more than 3,500 missing people on it. But by... Again, searching for men of the right age who disappeared around about the right time. I found somebody missing in Toronto. Height six foot six, weight 77 kilos. A guy called Michael Dean. Okay. So, Michael Dean, now when did he go missing though? Did he go missing? after we this body's found or i mean that's an important date so so when exactly did he go missing was it at the right time the details from canada's missing are sketchy to say the least he was missing from september the 2nd 1991 okay so if he goes missing in the end of 1991 we've got a body that's found in 1994 though could have been there from late 1993 and he does need time to get over from Canada to that neck of the woods if it's him so from a date perspective that does kind of fit in as well doesn't it it does and uh, I'm presuming you mean that he was alive when he got over from Canada rather than floating all the way from there <laughs> well you may have floated he probably would struggle to float from toronto but it's impractical no, i think you need to go through the panama canal and somebody was bound to have seen him on the way but that's interesting though because we've got a guy of the same or very similar height very similar height both of them extraordinarily tall for the general population just on his weight then 
you said he was what 77 kilos what did the Wilhelmshaven police say about their John Doe their John Doe is between 70 and 75 kilos right I thought that was a bullseye that is a bullseye so we've got a bullseye on height we've got a bullseye on weight we've got a bullseye on the fact that he was in Canada and we know one of the articles of clothing found on the body was made and sold in Canada. So that sounds like a, like a great start. So what, was we, what were we saying at the start of this episode? You pick up the first pebbles. Didn't expect you to find this picking up, maybe not the first pebble, but a night's worth of pebbles. It's been a long haul. And, we, and I've actually have picked up hundreds of rocks before we found Michael hiding under that one on Canada's Missing. You've got all of the information that I have now, bar the fact that it was his landlord who reported him missing in Toronto. In Toronto. Yeah. Okay. So I suppose if we're going to get serious about this, I need to ring Toronto missing persons or Toronto Police Department anyway. Do they have a contact details on the information that you found? Yep. can get them for you to make that call, Ken. I think it's important. I think, they, I think that they'll be very interested. Well, can't do any harm. So, okay, my job first thing tomorrow, I'm going to ring Toronto Police Department, tell them we found a tall person and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, who happens to be dead. And uh, maybe there's a match with this person that went missing in Toronto in 1991. It can't do any harm. So let's see where that takes us. Brilliant. Thanks, Ian. So we've got the name of a missing man who happens to be the right height, and that's a highly unusual height. He's the right weight. He went missing at the right time. And from Canada, where we know the tie on the dead body definitely came from. So that is a very, very good start. In fact, it's time to ring the police. Hello there, is that the Toronto Police Missing Persons Unit? Yes, the Toronto Police. But that's for next time. So, until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of the Gentleman of Heligoland is a copyrighted GSE Media production, written and narrated by Ian Mackay and Ken Davis, and produced by myself, Ken Davis. Mm-hmm.